All right, I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 6. John 6, starting in verse 30. So they said to him, Well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That sends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege of being drawn together and called by your name. Father, we pray now that as we open up your word, we pray that you would cause your word to accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Lord, do it only you can to open up our eyes, ears, hearts, and minds. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word, that your people would be built up and edified. And Lord, if there are any who do not know you, we pray that they would be brought to a conviction of sin and uh, repentance and faith in Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick back up again with our series in John. And we come now to one of the sections which I hinted at when we began chapter 6. Uh, Jesus gives us a peek behind the curtain of eternity. Uh, Jesus tells us here some glorious truths, uh, some truths which may be new to some of you, but which I hope will become precious and treasured truths. Alongside Romans 8 and 9 and Ephesians 1, John chapter 6 gives us some of the most direct statements about the doctrines of election, about the effectual nature of God's grace, the power that he has to convert sinners, the preservation of the elect as well as the deadness of man in sin. So let's look first at the setting for this glorious section. We pick back up uh, in John chapter 6. So you may remember the day before this dialogue, Jesus had performed the miracle of multiplying the bread and fish, feeding 5,000 men plus women and children. When the crowd then identified him as the prophet like Moses, the prophet they'd been waiting for, uh, they were then going to try to make him king by force. And so Jesus then withdrew to the mountain by himself. His disciples had then gone out on the boat, uh, on, on a boat across the sea, and the sea became stormy, and then Jesus came walking across the water, uh, walking to their boat, and he joined them on the boat. And so the next day, the crowd found Jesus in Capernaum, 
And Pastor Josh preached on the, the beginning of the discussion that then followed. And so we pick up now in the middle of that discussion. So Jesus had just declared that they must believe in him. The work of the Father is to believe him whom he has sent. And so let's read now from verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now Moses had miraculous signs when he came to the people of Israel when they were still in slavery in Egypt. Right? He had these miracles uh, that confirmed that he was truly sent from God. Uh, kids, you may remember, what were the miracles that Moses performed? He would put down his staff and it would transform into a snake. Right? Or he would put his hand into his cloak and when he pulled out his hand again, it was leprous. had leprosy, white as snow. Um, Moses was then used to bring the plagues upon Egypt, uh, and Moses was used uh, to provide Israel uh, water in the wilderness, and God also provided uh, manna from heaven. Uh, and so now they're looking and saying, well, if Jesus is the prophet like Moses, and in fact Jesus is making greater claims than what Moses even made, the people are wondering, well, if Moses had these signs to affirm his authority, to confirm that he was truly sent from God, then now what signs does Jesus have? Right? What work will you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Now, what sign do you perform? And that's interesting, isn't it? Because this comes on the heels of what was just a great sign that Jesus had performed. He had fed 5,000 people, multiplying uh, the bread and the fish. And so in this question, uh, there might be a downplaying of that miracle that Jesus performed. Um, as Joseph Benson writes, by extolling the miracle of the manna, praising the miracle of the manna, and calling it bread from heaven, and by insinuating, uh, suggesting that it was Moses' miracle, the Jews endeavored to disparage, uh, to cast shade upon, uh, both Christ's mission and his miracle of the loaves, which they affected to despise as no miracle in comparison. Right? It was only a single meal of terrestrial food, of earthly food, at which nine or 10,000 had been fed, whereas Moses gave celestial food, heavenly food, and he fed the whole Jewish nation in number upward of two million, uh, and that not for a day, but during the space of 40 years in the wilderness. Now, just to put that into simpler language, they're basically saying to Jesus, you gave us earthly bread, Moses gave bread from heaven. You fed thousands of people once, Moses fed millions for 40 years. You claim to be greater than Moses, so show us now a greater sign. Right? Implying the sign you performed was not up to snuff. It was not greater than what Moses had done. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So Jesus brings two corrections here to their thinking. First, he redirects their attention from Moses 
onto the Father. Fact was, if you read the story, it was not Moses who initially gave the people the bread from heaven. Exodus 16, verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. Who gave the bread? The Lord, Yahweh. So firstly, Jesus shifts their attention from Moses, says this is not actually a sign Moses did. This is something God the Father provided. And so the second correction then is about the nature of bread from heaven. What kind of bread should they really be after? Right? They've been remembering these stories of manna, the, the bread that appeared on the ground uh, with the morning dew and fed the congregation of Israel uh, during their time in the wilderness. They've been thinking of this, comparing that miracle and comparing Jesus uh, to Moses. Uh, and Jesus now says, truly, truly, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So the true bread from heaven or the true bread of God is not simply physical bread. So Jesus says, if you're looking for something greater than the manna, you've got it. The true bread from heaven, the true bread of God, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. They seemed to think Jesus was speaking still of uh, physical bread. And I think this misunderstanding is easier for us to get if we understand the Greek. It sounds odd, right? We read it in this translation. that uh, Jesus says the bread of heaven is he who comes down to give life to the world. Um, but the Greek doesn't actually say he. Uh, the NASB translates it this way. Uh, it says the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Um, so this would be a possible rendering. It would be a, a reasonable interpretation of what Jesus said, that they would have still thought this was simply bread. Uh, and so they asked Jesus to, to give him this better bread, this true bread from heaven. Sir, can we have some? Uh, give it to us always. But notice Jesus was not speaking of literal bread. Rather, he was using bread to communicate something deeper. And in this encounter, we have some echoes here of previous encounters, don't we? Do you remember what Jesus told to Nicodemus? He said to Nicodemus that to, in order to see the kingdom of heaven, to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. <laughs> what did Nicodemus ask? Where am I going to find a womb big enough? <laughs> Can a man enter into the womb a second time and be born? Or Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that he has living water that will become a spring welling up to eternal life. And what does she ask? Where is your bucket? Right? The well is deep and you have nothing to draw water with. Here too now Jesus speaks of the true bread from heaven that will give life to the world. And they say, sir, give it to us. Can we have some? They seem to think still this was physical bread. And so Jesus says to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here we have the first of the famous I am statements from Jesus in John. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You might be familiar with some of the other ones. Later, Jesus will also say, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the door or I am the gate. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, he will say, I am the vine. Now, these are likely familiar to you, especially if you've grown up in and around the church. Um, But what you may not be familiar with is one thing that makes all of these statements peculiar. And that is the particular Greek construction of the verb. Now, if that sounds overly academic, bear with me here. Uh, This actually matters a great deal and turns out to be another beautiful testimony to the identity of Christ. So R.C. Sproul comments on this passage and says, Normally in the Greek, when someone wants to say, I am, they would use the word ego, Greek word ego. But the Greek language has another form of the verb to be, which can be translated in English as I am, and that is the word I me. What is strange about this particular statement of Jesus is that he doesn't say ego, the bread of life, nor does he say I me, the bread of life, but rather he puts these two verb forms together saying ego I me, the bread of life. It sounds like a redundancy. It sounds like Jesus is stuttering because literally what he is saying here is, I am, I am the bread of life. What is so significant about this is that this structure of the verb is exceedingly rare, but one of the most important places where we find it is in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Close quote. And so you may remember that in Exodus chapter 3, when God is sending Moses uh, into Egypt from the burning bush, Moses asks God, what shall I tell the people if they ask me who has sent you? What should I tell them? Exodus 3 verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And in this phrase, we have the identical Greek construction in the Septuagint. Ego, I, me. This gets picked up a few times, uh, notably in Isaiah. We'll comment on that when we come to some of the other I am statements. But for now, let us just note that this was very likely an intentional connection made to draw attention to the identity of Christ. So clear was it, in fact, that in John 8, 58, Jesus says this again. He says, before Abraham was... I am, the Jews then picked up stones to stone him. For they recognized that statement as a claim to deity. So the significance of this unique phrase is that it links the identity of Jesus with the divine name in the Old Testament, drawing from that statement, I am that I am. Jesus says, ego, I me, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Christ declares himself to be the true 
bread from heaven. The previous bread from heaven, the manna in the wilderness, did give life to God's people. Receiving that bread from heaven brought the people life. God saved them from starvation. But as Jesus will point out in verse 49, everybody who ate of that manna in the wilderness still died. Right? That bread, like all food, gave life, but only temporary life. That bread satisfied hunger, but only for a time. In contrast, Jesus says, I am the true bread of life. I am he who came down from heaven to give life to the world. As we've seen through John and see here again, Jesus is no ordinary man. He is the eternal word of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The Logos, God the Son, who was with God in the beginning. He truly had come down from heaven. Right? God the Son took on a human nature and was born of a woman by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he came to give life to the world. True life. Eternal life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And here we have a very helpful interpretation of the metaphor that will be useful later in John chapter 6. Uh, later on, Jesus will say something that his hearers found very difficult to receive, and that is Jesus will extend this metaphor, taking it further, uh, speaking of the need for people uh, to eat his flesh and to drink his blood, something that would be rather confusing on its own, but should pose no trouble for us uh, once we realize that the meaning of those metaphors has already been established here, earlier in the passage. So look with me. Jesus says, It is those who come to him who shall never hunger, and it is those who believe in him who shall never thirst. So eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ, therefore, are equivalent in this text to coming to him and believing in him, right? Notice what it is. Those who come to him will not have the problem of hunger. Those who believe in him will not have the problem of thirst. So to put this all in the simplest possible terms, kids, if you've been lost, here's the summary. Jesus came down from heaven to give life to the world. Those who come to him in faith metaphorically receive the bread of life. Those who believe in him shall have their thirst eternally quenched. Right? So these are, of course, metaphors for salvation. All who come to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And we should mention here that truly coming to Jesus and truly believing in his name means more than simply having said a prayer at one time in your life. You know, many people think that faith in Jesus means a vague acknowledgement that he is the Messiah or that he rose from the dead. 
They claim to believe. They are convinced that because they claim to believe and because they said a prayer, perhaps asking Jesus into their hearts when they were little, that this essentially means that they have their ticket to heaven punched and so now can live their lives however they please. But we must understand, true faith in Jesus is a faith that produces something in people. Right? It brings a change to the way you live your life. We see this all over the scriptures. But just consider for a moment, what is the basic Christian confession? Right? We speak of receiving Jesus or believing in his name. We ask the question then, what are we receiving him as? Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So notice the basic Christian confession is that Jesus is Lord. To believe in his name means, therefore, that we believe that he was who he said he was, that he is who he said he was. Lord, Master, Messiah, God, and King. My friends, if Jesus is not functionally the Lord of your life, then do not deceive yourself into thinking that he is your Savior. As Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. True faith in Christ receives Christ for who he truly is. Lord, Master, King, God, and Savior. Now, we must note here, it's very, very important we get this. This is not saying that we are saved by our works. But rather, we're recognizing that true conversion to Christ involves transformation. Right? It is to be born again, John 3. It is to be made alive when we were dead in transgression and sin, Ephesians 2. And so if someone continues living completely on their terms, disregarding the authority of Christ, they are giving evidence that they have no part in this matter. And so the call goes out. Repent. Turn from your sin. Believe in Jesus. Receive him as Lord, Master, and Savior, and God, and King. Come to him truly. Receive the bread of life, and you will have eternal life. <clears throat> Let's continue on. Verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Right, so Jesus now comments on the response of this crowd, these people who have seen him. So they have seen miracles, they have seen power on display, but their only thought appears to have been their own political ambitions. Remember, thinking they would take Jesus by force to make him king. As D.A. Carson put it, they have seen only bread and power, but not what they signify. 
This crowd has witnessed the divine revealer at work, but only their curiosity, appetites, and political ambitions have been aroused, not their faith. So if some can see Jesus and his miraculous signs and still not come to faith, does that not suggest that his mission is in some sense a failure? Close quote. Jesus answers that question in verse 37. Read with me in the text. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Carson again. So however many people do not believe, God's saving purposes cannot be thought to be frustrated. Jesus' confidence does not rest in the potential for positive response among well-meaning people. Far from it, his confidence is in his Father to bring to pass the Father's redemptive purposes. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus' confidence in the success of his mission is frankly predestinarian, close quote. Now here, in this one verse, we have three glorious doctrines represented. We'll spend the rest of our time unpacking these. So what are these doctrines we see here? Well, the first is election. The second is what theologians refer to as irresistible grace. And the third, perseverance of the saints. So let's begin with election. Where do we see election in in this verse? Well, notice that Jesus refers to a group of people as those whom the Father had given to him. All that the Father gives me. We see this elsewhere in Scripture. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Catch this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So see from this text, God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Just in case that wasn't clear enough, he goes on to say in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Very similar, Romans 8, 29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, God the Father chose a particular people in Christ Jesus. He predestined them for adoption to himself as sons. And so in John chapter 6, Jesus has no fear whatsoever that his mission will be a failure. 
because its success rests in the sovereignty of God. God had given a particular people to the Son, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And although these particular people to whom Jesus is speaking might be rejecting him at present, Jesus declares that those whom the Father has given him will come. Look at what he says. All of them, all the Father gives me, the full number of the elect, will come. It is sure. It is certain. It is guaranteed. In the sovereign predestination of God, those whom he has chosen, he will bring to faith in Christ. And this now is the doctrine of irresistible grace. And I hope you see this all in the language of Christ from this text. Notice this is not something that theologians have come up with on their own. Rather, this is the straightforward teaching of the text of Scripture. All that the Father gives to him will come. And so we might ask, but what if they don't want to? Can man foil the plans of God? No. Here's the reality. Apart from the work of God in the heart, nobody would want to come. Look down to John 6:44. Jesus says, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him." No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The fact is, we are all born with a sinful nature. Scripture describes us as being dead in transgression and sin. Ephesians 2. Describes us as having hearts made of stone. Ezekiel 36. We are described as being slaves to sin. John 8.34. Jesus has said previously, no one can see or enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. John 3. We have this string of quotations from the Old Testament quoted by the Apostle Paul in order to confirm his point that all are under sin. This is Romans 3, 10 to 18. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So here is the dilemma. Here is the predicament. On our own, apart from the work of God in our hearts, no one would come. No one can come. No one is able to come. So in answer to the question, what if people don't want to come? The answer is, it is the very willingness to come that God works in our hearts. 
Acts chapter 16 tells of the conversion of Lydia, who was a wealthy merchant who met Paul in Philippi and heard him preaching the gospel. Acts 16 verse 14 says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So when we speak of irresistible grace, we should not picture God dragging people into the kingdom, kicking and screaming against their will. But rather, we see that it is the very willingness to come that God grants. And faith itself is spoken of as a gift of God. Philippians 1.29 says, It has been granted to you not only to believe, but also that you should suffer for his sake. Right? It's been granted to you to believe. Ezekiel 36, speaking of the promises of the new covenant, says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the miracle that God works in the heart. He performs a spiritual heart transplant. He gives to his people new hearts with new desires. He opens our hearts. He grants the willingness. He gives new desires. All that the Father gives me will come to me. They will not come begrudgingly or against their will but God will change their hearts. It is the very willingness to come that God grants to the heart. And Jesus says this miracle is something that will occur in the hearts of all whom the Father has given to him. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes, I will never cast out. Now, D.A. Carson argues that the second half of this statement is frequently misunderstood because people often miss the figure of speech that Jesus is using here. Uh, kids in English class, you maybe knew this one, uh, but this is an example of a litotes. I had to look that up, litotes. Uh, this is when you affirm something by denying its contrary. Right? Frequently, it can be an ironic form of understatement. Uh, for example, one of my good friends if you will ever offer him a really good cup of coffee, he will almost never say yes. Rather, he will say, I wouldn't say no to that. Right? There's an example of a litotes. He's, he's um, negating the contrary. I wouldn't say no is actually a way of saying yes. And, and so Carson argues this is what Jesus is doing here. Uh, it's a figure of speech, uh, and it actually carries more force than what it appears to at face value. He says that Jesus is uh, not simply saying that he won't cast those out who come, but rather he's saying he will keep them. He will preserve them. Right? They will be kept by his power. This is the doctrine known as the perseverance of the saints. And what this means is that those who are truly united to Christ will never be lost. Right? Those whom the Father has given to the Son who were chosen in him before the foundation of the world, 
they will come to Christ, and Christ will keep them. This becomes very clear as Jesus expands on it in verses 38 and 39. Let's read those together. Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Here's a question. Will Jesus fail to do the will of the Father? To ask it is to answer it. Of course not. Jesus will not fail to do the will of the Father. Therefore, not one of the elect will be lost. Those whom the Father has given to the Son will come, and those who come, he will keep. He will not cast them out. For Jesus said, I came from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So to put this all together, Jesus is teaching that all of the elect will come. God will open their hearts, give them new desires, draw them effectually to Christ, and Christ will keep and preserve all of them such that not one will be lost, but will all be raised up on the last day. They will all be glorified, will attain to the resurrection of life. So there's our text for this morning. Now we ask another question. Why does this matter? We, as a Reformed Church, we love to talk about these things. We love to extol and proclaim the absolute sovereignty of God. Uh, We look forward to teaching uh, and preaching texts like this one uh, for this very reason. And so the question is, why? Why does all of this matter? Why is it important for us to affirm and to believe these things? Well, firstly, as I hope we've seen, this is clearly biblical. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. And we, as God's people, must believe everything that God has revealed to us. And secondly, we also believe that everything God reveals to us, he does for a reason. That God has a purpose. He has an intention in revealing to us these truths. So, one of the major implications of understanding these doctrines is that it will correct our thinking. It will move us from man-centeredness to God-centeredness. Now, the doctrine of election rubs many people the wrong way because it truly is an affront to man-centered thinking. The message of many churches today is all about you. Right? God loves you so much. You are so valuable that heaven went bankrupt to get you. Right? He didn't want heaven without you. <laughs> Another song. Like a rose trampled on the ground, he took the fall and thought of me above all. And so many people have a view of Christianity that is essentially therapeutic. Right? I come to church to hear about how valuable I am so that I will feel better about myself. 
Now, it's true that there are certain therapeutic benefits from Christianity. I do certainly hope that you all leave feeling encouraged most Sundays. But what you need far more, what we all need far more, than to be told how great we are, is to be told how great our God is. So the best thing for people who are struggling with self-esteem, self-worth, self-image, is not to pump their tires and further try to inflate their sense of self. It is instead to pull their attention away from themselves and up onto God. Doctrines of grace, learning of these things we've looked at this morning, of man's nature as a sinner, learning of election, the power of the atonement, the power of grace, the preserving power of God. These all have a powerful way of pulling our attention away from ourselves and onto God. For what we find is that there is nothing at all in us that has caused God to choose us. All mankind is equally sinful before God. And so God did not choose you because he saw something special in you. He did not choose to grant you grace because he foresaw that you would be receptive to the gospel. Rather, you were receptive to the gospel because he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. All that the Father gives me will come to me. You were receptive to the gospel because the Spirit of God caused you to be born again. Because he removed your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Brothers and sisters, it was not because of anything in you. You were not deserving of grace. In fact, grace by its very definition cannot be earned or deserved, for grace means unmerited favor. God showing grace and kindness to undeserving sinners. Grace cannot be earned. It cannot be deserved. There is nothing that a sinner like me or like you could ever do to make ourselves worthy of grace. And so because of this, all the credit, all the honor, all the glory for your salvation goes to God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. And this is what scripture tells us God is aiming at in your salvation. To continue reading the passage from Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to what end? To the praise of his glorious grace. Why does scripture say God chose sinners for salvation? Not because they were so valuable, not because they were so worthy and so deserving, but so that their salvation would be unto the praise of his glorious grace. 
at the heart of creation, at the heart of the gospel, truly at the heart of all things, is this, the glory of God. And so the gospel, therefore, doesn't primarily magnify the worth and the value of man and so stroke our egos. Rather, we see the fact that God would set his love on such unworthy, undeserving sinners like us magnifies the amazing, mind-blowing, sovereign grace of our God. The result of understanding this is humility and gratitude. To think that God would send his son to die for someone like me, a creature from the dirt, who has spat upon his worth, who has scorned his value, a creature who God knew from eternity past would frequently fail, even after being redeemed, would slide far too often into spiritual apathy, selfishness, mopiness, bouts of pride. God, knowing all the times that you would scorn him, knowing full well every sin you would ever commit against him, chose you from before the foundation of the world, sent his son down as a man to live the life of righteous obedience that you failed to live, died on the cross taking the wrath against sin that you deserved to bear, and then rose from the dead and ascended to the Father's right hand where he ever lives to intercede for you. And then at just the right time, his Holy Spirit opened your heart to receive the gospel. You who were given from the Father to the Son came to the Son in faith because of what God did in your heart. So brothers and sisters, glorify God for his amazing sovereign grace. Be humbled and shift your thinking to become God-centered. You are too small to occupy the space at the center of all things. If you make a God of yourself, you will ultimately be disappointed, for you will find first that you make a lousy God and that selfishness cannot satisfy your soul. As Augustine of Hippo once put it, God made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. If you are here this morning and you do not know God, or perhaps have not been living a life aiming at the glory of God in all things, I invite you to repent. Confess your sin to God. Trust in Christ alone for salvation. Receive him as the bread of life. Believe in his name. Receive him for who he truly is. Lord, Master, Savior, God, and King. The promise is given that to all who repent and believe, they will not perish, but have eternal life. So come to Christ and find life. Amen.